postcard from Dulcie to Stephanie, dated 12th of December, 1976. Dear Stephanie and family, how are you all keeping? I thought I'd send you this card to cheer you up. I'm having a lazy Saturday morning, tucked up in bed while it's pouring outside, but I so seldom have a chance just to be lazy. My telephone number has changed. It's 01-485-9739. Get well soon and do right. Michael, have a nice birthday. Love, Dulcie. My name is Neo Rakajani and I've got a quick announcement before we continue. You are listening to the second episode of a podcast called They Killed Dulcie. If you haven't heard the first episode yet, you need to stop right here and scroll down your feed and listen to that one first. I also need to warn you that this episode and the whole series deals with violent and sometimes graphic content. Let's get back to the story. In the first episode of this podcast, we declared it our mission to reverse the erasure of Dulcie's September. We met Dulcie's nephew Michael and her childhood friend Betty and began telling the story of how she grew up on the Cape Flats in the 1930s and 40s. In this episode, things get serious when Dulcie and Betty join a militant organization with the intention of overthrowing the government. It would have to be warfare or the threat of war, but it would have to be that. But we begin in present-day Paris, where our reporter continues his journey to answer the question, why was Dulcie killed? This series is produced by Sound Africa and Open Secrets. This episode is called The Spies. This is Rasmus Bits. From the scene of Dulcie's murder in the center of Paris, I've taken two different metro lines and a train and walked for about 10 minutes through the Parisian suburb of Arcoy. I passed an old Roman aqueduct and entered an area with what looks like small social housing blocks. I find myself on a busy street corner across the street from a construction site in front of a square, nondescript apartment building. I've been backtracking Dulcie's steps on the day she was killed. I don't know what I was expecting to find here. Everything seems incredibly ordinary and I'm actually about to leave. But then suddenly, in the left corner of the apartment block, I see something. There is in fact a plaque here. It looks nice, the plaque. It's like shiny stone with uh, golden letters that appear to have been repainted is a funny contrast to this gray block of flats here that uh, doesn't really have anything distinct about it. As I walk closer across a tiny yellow patch of grass, I can read the text. Dolce September lived in this 
block of flats from January 1987 to March 1988 and she was the representative of the Afri African National Congress in France assassinated on the 29th of March 1988 by apartheid. As you can hear in my voice, I'm mildly surprised by the last sentence. It says that Dorsey September was killed by apartheid. I mean, that's most likely true, but it's also very imprecise. It's like saying somebody who's struck by lightning was killed by weather. In the last episode, we described this story as a spiral. In the center was the murder and the erasure of Dorsey September. And our goal is to move outwards, to find out why she was killed, and to tell a fuller story of who she was. This is the next curve of that spiral. From the murder scene in the center of the city, I've moved outwards to the Parisian suburbs and to the next question. If we believe Dorsey September was murdered by hired assassins, who hired them? At first sight, the memorial plaque on the wall gives an answer that's so broad that it seems almost useless. But looking closer, there's actually a clue. Dolce September lived in this block of flats from January 1987 to March 1988. Dolce had only lived in the building for just over a year when she was killed. So why did she move? So first Dulcie came and so she lives in uh, above a school, you see. The flat was just above the classrooms. This is Jacqueline Durance. You might remember her from the last episode. She's Dulcie's friend and activist colleague. She explains that Dulcie first lived here in Akoi, where the communist mayor had made an apartment available for her at a public school. A flat that's normally reserved for the school principal. And it sounds like Dorsey, who in a former life had been a teacher, would have felt at home. But two years before her death, she asked to be relocated. Gradually, you know, she became a bit afraid. She asked the mayor, she said, no, I don't want to stay any longer next to children. I don't want anything to happen to the children. I've chosen to be an activist. If they kill me, well, that's my choice in a way. But I don't want anything to happen to the kids. So I don't want to stay there. From one point of view, it's not surprising she was scared. The apartheid government had shown it was willing to assassinate its opponents, both in South Africa and the region. But was Dulcie being paranoid when she thought agents would go as far as putting innocent children in danger? The short answer is no. In 1984, about three years before Dorsey moved, Jeanette Skuren, who was living in exile in Angola, was killed in an explosion. A bomb exploded as she opened a parcel that was sent to her house. Her six-year-old daughter, Katrin, was also killed, and her two-year-old son, Fritz, was watching. Then I was taken into the flat. One wall was blood, floor to ceiling, pieces of flesh on the floor. This is her husband, Marius, who was interviewed by the SABC during the Truth and Reconciliation hearings in South Africa. Fritzy sat on my lap, holding on to me like a little monkey, and he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. And then he said to me, I thought the enemy had killed you as well. 
And then he said something else to me. He said, the enemy didn't kill Jenny. They just broke her in pieces. Politicians rarely do their own killings. They've got people for that. They're called soldiers, or when killings are secret, not part of an open armed conflict, they're middlemen involved. They're called spies. And one of the most notorious spies of the apartheid era is a man named Craig Williamson. Here he is speaking to the SABC in the 1990s. It's a soldier's job to kill. When he's threatened and when the system that he's defending is threatened, that is the response. It was Craig Williamson who sent the parcel to the Schoen family and killed Jeanette and her daughter. And he admitted this and other acts of political violence during the truth and reconciliation hearings. He did this in exchange for amnesty, and today, he's a free man. This, and Williamson in general, remains controversial. This is Janet Love, an activist and a friend of Dorsey. Today, she's the vice chairperson of the Electoral Commission in South Africa. He's a vile individual who hasn't been made accountable for the criminality that he perpetrated and um, yeah it's difficult for me to say anything um, remotely more contained than that. Janet Love isn't the only one who feels this way about Williamson. But if we are going to find out anything more than what is already on the plaque on the wall outside Dorsey's flat that she was killed by apartheid. We have to dig deeper. To find explanations that are more complicated than good or evil. To understand the mechanics. And going deeper in this case means going to Bryanston in Joburg. Amongst the pale, well-guarded office buildings where plastic and yogurt empires are run from, we struggle to find our destination. Shit. And I have to go back there. Oh. We can't at this point say that Craig Williamson has had anything to do with Dorsey September's death. But he's uniquely placed to tell us about the mechanics of apartheid. And he has agreed to meet us to talk about the past. It's like, it's not his office. Yeah. It's a whole bunch of people and then you get a little box. Yeah, you you rent it maybe. Yeah, it's a random office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is half a lifetime and 10,000 kilometers between Dulcie's final posting in Paris and the cool reception in Bryanston, where we meet Craig Williamson later in this episode. But if there is anything the story is about, it is that the past and the present are connected, that the beginning of our spiraling story is neither Bryanston nor Paris. It is Athlone in Cape Town. It is time to go back to Dulcie's childhood friend, Betty van der Hayden. This is Nina Callahan. A black and white portrait of Dulcie September hangs prominently on Betty's living room wall. Dulcie looks directly at the camera. She has dark, serious, but smiling eyes. Her black hair is tied loosely behind her head and she stands tall and proud, even in a facial portrait. In the frozen black and white picture, Dulcie looks important, 
like the freedom fighter she later became. But in the picture, you can't see the Dulcie she also was, an ordinary young woman who liked to dance. You know, I'm almost grown. It was rock and roll, my dear. That was the rock and roll age. It was Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry and the Dulcie liked to party. She liked to dance, so did I. I was a very good dancer. My father used to come in and said, what's going on here? <laughs> I can't dance like that. Look at them sliding on the floor. Look at it. You don't see their panties. But we had a lot of fun. As a young woman, estranged from her family, maybe she was looking for community when she followed Betty into the Cape Peninsula Students' Union. According to Betty, Dulcie wasn't particularly interested in discussing politics. She went along, she supported me, but she never really joined the way that I, I did, you know. Didn't go to the meetings, in, but went to all the fundraising activities and so on. Eventually, my... Mates became her friends as well. It is impossible to untangle the many reasons we make the choices that define our lives. Dulcie didn't choose the society or the family she was born into. But at least from Betty's perspective, it seems that Dulcie took her first political baby steps almost in spite of politics, because she wanted to be with her friends. And her friends were active in the political movements that had sprung up in the 1940s and 50s. Movements that were taking a stand against apartheid that had become the official government policy in 1949. Via the teachers' union, they became members of the unity movement. But then the movement split into two groups over political disagreement. And the very issues that are giving us headaches in South Africa now, the land issue and the language issue. And you had to choose, you know. Dulcie still didn't care much for ideological nitpicking. But she saw the system for what it was. When I spoke to Dulcie about this, it was not uh, something that she was interested in. She was getting just interested in getting rid of this apartheid government. Dulcie and Betty joined one of the splinter groups called Abdusa that had been formed in 1961, but they left soon after. We felt that Abdusa was like the rest of the unity movement, sort of moving in circles, you know. We weren't getting anywhere. And uh, when Neville Alexander, one of our members, came back from, from Europe, we formed a little group called the study group. We were just about eight members. Um, we formed this group we called the Yuchi Chan Club. Until then, revolutionary life had been relatively innocent. Yes, they wanted a revolution, and sooner rather than later, but it had been mostly talk. In the meantime, the tension in South Africa had been rising and it reached a boiling point on the 21st of March, 1960. 69 people were killed, 
many of them shot in the back as they were running away from the Sharpville police station. All of them unarmed. 180 were injured as they tried to flee the police station where a protest had turned into what became known as the Sharpville Massacre. Activists were jailed, protesters beaten and shot. In reaction to what was happening in the country, the study group Betty had been part of founding was turning radical. And we studied revolutionary movements and we felt that you know, the time for talk in South Africa was, was over. Its name, the Yuchi Chan Club, was inspired by a document by Mao Zedong, a document discussing tactics of guerrilla warfare. The apartheid government was too entrenched in their, in their system. They could never give in because they'd be overwhelmed by the majority. So it would have to be warfare or the threat of war, but it would have to be that. Soon the group changed its name to NLF, the National Liberation Front. The first thing the NLF did was discuss how to structure their organization. The decision was made to form cells of 10 operatives each. These cells would be scattered all over South Africa where they would prepare for armed struggle. For her own group, Betty decided that it was time to invite Dulcie to join. I knew that, I, that she would have turned down the study group because that is not Dulcie's line of, of activity. She was more into doing something. And this self-formation and the definitely putting ourselves in line for not only talk but actually activity that might involve fighting as more Dalti's line <laughs> meant that there was going to be some action. So going to her and asking her was a simple thing. Dulcie's first task was to act as the group's postbox. A message would come to her and she would pass it on to Betty, who would then share it with the core group. But much sooner than they expected, the group had to realize that their security system didn't work. In 1963, Betty had been traveling to meet with cells across the country. When she returned, she met Dulcie, who had some bad news. There'd been a raid at her house. The police had raided the Queenstown cell and taken documents from them. One of these documents had Dulcie's address. Dulcie was the postbox. If the police got to her, they could get to everyone. In any story, there's a point of no return. The moment when the hero can't go back to how life used to be, but has to continue as the conflict escalates. With the security police entering Dulcie's life, she was now at a point of no return. A few years later, a young man from Bryanston in Johannesburg moved in the opposite direction. His name was Craig Williamson. Soon after that, he met a point of no return of his own. 
This is Rasmus Bits again. If you've ever been to the reception of any office complex, you already know exactly what it looks like where Craig Williamson has agreed to meet us. On the walls there are artworks that you immediately forget as soon as you look away. There is nothing extraordinary about the place where Williamson sometimes meets his business associates. Good morning. Hello, how are you? I'm here to see Craig. Yes. <laughs> how would you know? Well, you told me you'd be carrying cameras. Uh. <laughs> the same can't be said about him. In a way, he is almost the exact opposite of Dorsey September. He is alive and free. If Dorsey September is a forgotten hero, for many, Craig Williamson is an infamous villain. But even he wasn't born to be the apartheid spy he later became. Like Dorsey, he was a product of the community he grew up in. But he also made choices that changed his life. And of course, the lives of others. Like all the other office buildings in this part of the city, this one is carefully climate controlled. The soundscape is the steady hum of the air conditioner and no smell or sight reminds you how life is lived on the outside. Um, I'm Craig Williamson. I'm here to <clears throat> record my memories of the past. <laughs> Perhaps ironically, this is also where it all began. Well, I, I grew up exactly where we are at the moment. Um, I grew up here in Bryanston, which is a higher socio-economic uh, area and always has been. Um, I came from a, basically from a privileged background. Growing up as a privileged white South African didn't make Craig Williamson a spy, but that he was a white man mattered. Because at the time, all South African young white men had to serve in the security forces. Williamson, who had ambitions of studying law, chose the police over the military. So that's what I, I did. I joined the police. I became an ordinary uniformed police officer. Williamson was ambitious and signed up for voluntary exams and was quickly promoted to sergeant. That in those days was quite unusual to have a 20 or 21 year old um, sergeant. And I obviously attracted attention. It was at this point that Williamson made the first decision that put him on the path of a career spy. And although he says he didn't understand the implications of what he was deciding, the people who recruited him did. And one day I was just asked to go to a meeting. They then introduced me to the commander of the security branch in Johannesburg, Colonel Johan Kutzia. He had heard that I was intending to leave the police and go to university and he proposed to me there was a way that I needn't uh, have to leave the police but I could still go to university um, and that's how it all started. It was the beginning of the 1970s. The South African government had managed to cripple the leading liberation movements, the ANC and the PAC, which both had been banned and many of their leaders were either in prison or in exile. But new protest movements were mobilizing in schools and universities across the country. And this was where Craig Williamson was useful. Because he was English-speaking, it was easier for him to pose as a leftist and spy on his new comrades at university. Craig Williamson had begun what would be almost a decade of deception. He had become an undercover agent for the government. 
I rose quite rapidly in the ranks of white student politics in South Africa. And by 1975, I was the vice president of the National Union of Students. When you're telling stories, there's a risk of being seduced by your own narrative, to give coincidence importance just because it fits your story. But when looking at the emergence of Craig Williamson and Dorsey September as opponents in a political struggle, it's interesting how they both made important choices in early adulthood. Choices they couldn't have foreseen the consequences of, but nevertheless choices that turned them from ordinary young adults into serious political operatives. Was it something in their personalities that made them go further than any of their friends? If Dulcie early in her life had learned to stand up for what she believed in and also learned that it came with a price, what were the personality traits the intelligence officers saw in Williamson? You have to be two people. Um, you have to genuinely be what you are in, in the cover life that you're running, but then you also have to be what you are as, a, as an intelligence officer. And you have to keep these lives in, in, you have to be able to put them into boxes. You've got to be able to open the one box and deal with it and then close it and, and deal with the, uh, with the other box. I mean, some people describe it almost as psychopathic, but you can't be that. But you, you've got to be... Why, why can't you be... So? Well, some people can, but that, that's pretty dangerous. Um, but you have to have an element maybe of antisocial personality where you, you don't feel guilty about betraying other people. Um, or if you do feel guilty, you can deal with it. Williamson went on to have a long career in intelligence. For the better part of a decade, he worked undercover in Europe. He was infiltrating the anti-apartheid movements that Dulcie was active in. Suddenly meeting these people who you've always been told are real terrorists is, is pretty exciting. There are spies everywhere, watching from the shadows, hiding in the crowds. Like mirrors, stories can help us see who we are. But not all reflections are accurate, just like frames can hide more than they reveal. We know best from the movies. Several times in our interview, Craig Williamson refers to fiction when he's explaining his work, to Narcos on Netflix and Jason Bourne. Spy movies make for spectacular view. The spy trait captures the imagination. Dead drops and double agents are fascinating. The gunfights, the chases, and the hair-raising stunts. But the thing is, it's not a movie. The fight that Dorsey September and Craig Williamson were on either side of was real. And so were the victims of apartheid, whether they were black South African children who grew up with nowhere to put their hopes and dreams for the future, or Angolans whose land became the theater of a proxy war between East and West, or an exiled schoolteacher from Cape Town who shot on the doorstep of her office in Paris. And while Dulcie fought to bring down apartheid, Williamson fought to keep it going. The goal was to make sure South Africa had the money, political capital and weapons to continue. And for a long time, it worked. We didn't do that only through our own 
genius. As as years went on, more and more elements, say, in the West really did want the South African government to survive, but certainly didn't want to be seen to be openly breaking sanctions or supporting especially military sanctions. Craig Williamson doesn't say countries. He says elements. And the word is important because by saying elements, Williamson hints at the existence of secret networks made up by many different actors. Networks set up and used by South Africa to buy weapons in spite of the international sanctions that had been put in place to prevent this. And these networks complicates how we understand apartheid. This is important, and we'll get deeper into this as the story continues. For now, it's time to begin locating Dorsey September. And the connections begin with France, where Dorsey was working. The big connection between France and South Africa for many years was on armaments. A lot of our equipment was French in origin. And that's why the military and the and arms corps had a much more developed um, relationship with, with the French services. France was, in other words, both selling weapons to South Africa and hosting the ANC, represented by Dolce. Uh, and again, when you've got a, a business relationship, a purely business relationship, that develops over a number of years, people go to quite a long lot of lengths to, to protect that and to develop it, even if politically it's a bit embarrassing. It's alluded to many times that her assassination has got to do with um, this business relationship, as you're saying, between South Africa and France. What's your opinion on that? Well, I've said it before, all I can do is repeat it, and that is that the theory makes sense. Um, I think like a lot of these things, people overcomplicate these types of operations and they try to look for too many conspiracy theories and this. I think it was probably a far more simple and that she was being, she was making a nuisance of herself. Um, she was uh, definitely, I mean, everybody knows that she was after the military nuclear collaboration with South Africa. And I think somebody just said she's gone too far and, uh, you know, she was probably on a list of names. Probably there was a number of names of key ANC personnel who were probably on a list somewhere for um, for killing. And um, somebody would have been told to carry out the operation and they did it. A list somewhere, what kind of, who, where? Well, there was, um, there were lists drawn up and it was, evidence was given at the TRC um, and uh, responsibility for dealing with somebody like that would have been given to whichever unit was operating. Um, it certainly wasn't any unit that I knew about, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, one of my criticisms of the politicians in South Africa was 
that, uh, and I said it at the TRC, you know, when they all said, and even top military and police officers said that they never knew about some of these targeted killings. And I said, but who did they think were killing these ANC people? Did they think it was the fairies? Craig Williamson is not the only one who has heard that Dulcie's assassination might have been connected to the secret arms trade between France and South Africa. We'll follow this trail in the coming episodes and tell the story of a large-scale secret arms trading operation run from the South African Embassy in Paris. But we are not entirely done with the spies. Our next episode is called The Double Agent. What do you know of how he died? Personally, I don't know, but I suspect he was taken out. By? ANC. Because? They thought he was a spy. They Killed Dulcy is made by Open Secrets and Sound Africa. For a full list of who supports our work, go to soundafrica.org and opensecrets.org.za.